The Old Testament scripture reading for this morning, as well as our sermon text, comes from Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May we give our attention to it. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country that is not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back Here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come before you. And we know that this is your word. 
We ask, Father, that your word would indeed go forth and that you would cause it to accomplish all that you have set out for it to do, that it would not return empty and void. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts and the ears. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed give us faith to see. We pray, Father, that you would give your speaker confidence and boldness to proclaim your holy word in season and out. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, it doesn't take long to realize that what often follows after great victory is great temptation. Somewhere along the line, you probably have had a moment where you were living in great faith and acted out of that faith only to question what you had just done a moment before as soon as it was over. You know, and acting out of that faith. Maybe you gave a large sum of money to the church or charity only to have your car break down the next day on you, sort of leaving the question hanging in the air, what did I just do? Did I just make a big mistake? It's too late to turn back. It's too late to uh, change your action. But nevertheless, the question sort of hangs in the air. Did I just make a huge mistake, even though it was done in faith? I'll never forget how after uh, finishing up college, uh, my wife and I, we had saved up enough money to move out to California for seminary. So we packed up all of our earthly possessions. We made the trek cross country to a land that was not our own, to a, a people that was not our own, in hopes of beginning this new life in seminary, preparing for pastoral ministry to allow God to use us as he will. And as we arrived out there jobless and homeless, pretty immediately, almost instantaneously, the economy tanked. Uh, it was simultaneous to our trip. Work became very difficult to find. We hadn't planned on that in our move. We hadn't calculated for the increased living in, in expenses. In fact, by the time it came to paying our second month's rent, we had almost used up all of our resources, and the thought that continued to persist and would not leave was, oh God, did you bring us out to this desert to die? Here we are, giving up everything we know, leaving everything behind, seeking to dedicate our lives to the ministry of church. And immediately, the question became, was this all just a big mistake? Will God indeed provide a way out of this mess? Well, beloved, this morning, what you are seeing here in Genesis 15 truly is the doubt that follows great faith. A few weeks ago in chapter 14, we saw Abram as he conquers a land. For once in Abram's life, we see Abram as he is, witnessing who he truly is. He is a great king who indeed is Lord over this whole land that God has promised would be his. And he becomes so great that he defeats all the armies and all the kings of the land. All the possessions become his by the end of chapter 14. And he stands in the war, at the end of this war, head and shoulders above all others in this land. And in the very last scene, you know, as he is with the king of Sodom and King Mel or, and Melchizedek, but especially with the king of Sodom who is trying to make a deal with Abraham, Abraham says, I won't take one cent from you. I will not take a penny 
from your hand because God is the one who will make me great. It won't come by your hand. It will not come by these earthly means. And instead of taking for himself one inch of this land by any other means than by the means God provide, he waits patiently on the Lord so that God might be glorified. Abraham takes nothing with him. Abraham has spurned by his actions in this rejection of a covenant. He has spurned the king of Sodom. You know, this potential covenant basically saying, I want nothing to do with you and your people. And in great faith, he walks away from all this earthly reward, trusting God to hold up his promises and fulfill them in his own good timing. Yet by all these actions, he is making enemies. He has just defeated five great kings or four great kings of the land. And surely each would consider Abram their enemy now. You know, and now he seems to be on shaky ground with even the kings within the land, with the king of Sodom. Well, even, and those who are his allies, the four kings who fought with him, while even distancing himself from the four men he made a covenant with before. You know, he tells the king of Sodom, I won't take your wealth, but these men over here who fought with me, they can have it all. Abram is estranging himself from all earthly advantage, and he seems to be putting himself in a bad place politically as well, all acting out of faith. And so when you realize this context leading up to chapter 15, it really shouldn't surprise us at all to learn that Abram is wondering, what did I just do? Abram is filled with doubt, and he is deeply troubled. And yet, in his doubt, God comes, and he speaks a word of comfort concerning a promised seed. A promised seed. As Abram is considering all these political troubles that are around him, God comes to him, and he speaks, and he says, Abram, fear not, for I am your shield, your reward shall be great. What a beautiful word from God. Here is Abraham who thinks, you know, who as he thinks about the four kings scattered before him, concerned that they may rally to seek his life. You know, as he thinks about how he has just refused to covenant with the king of Sodom who has four allies in the surrounding area. All of these troubles and problems run through his head and God comes to him and says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I'm the one who protects you. I'm the one who puts a hedge around you. I am your portion in this life. You have no need to worry about those kings from the north. I will protect you. You need not second guess the reward that you let slide through your fingers by not covenanting with the king of Sodom because I will reward you greatly. Surely my reward will be greater than any that you could have obtained through earthly means. I know it's hard to see now, Abraham, but a reward waits for you from me. But as God speaks these words of comfort to his child, Abraham speaks what is on his mind. He lays it all out there. He says, Lord God, that's great. You know, I'm glad You're going to do all these things for me. I'm glad you know that all the world will be blessed through me, that my offspring will number the dust of the earth. That's great, Lord. But I continue childless. As long as I remain childless, all your blessings, everything that you have promised me, 
They're going to a servant from within my own household. They're going to Eleazar. Abraham here, he is really wrestling with what God has promised. He is living in a reality gap. You know that God has promised him something that is real and great, but yet he cannot see it with his eyes. He cannot hold it in his hands or touch it with his, uh, touch it with his hands. He's a wanderer, and he's wandering in a land as a sojourner, and now he is wandering in this life. How, God, will you indeed keep your promises? And you know, some have come down hard on Abraham for, for doubting God's promise, even a little bit, even holding a smidgen of doubt. But the text is simply making it clear. Abraham is a human. He has struggles and issues just like us. And now, at this point in the text, it is going on 10 years. For 10 years, 10 years ago, God made this promise to Abraham saying, I will bless you and you will have offspring and they will number the dust of the earth and I will bless you greatly. And so Abraham, 10 years later, he still has nothing to show for it. No child has been given, and it's not that Abraham doubts that God can do these things now. It's not as though he doesn't believe in the promises, you know, that God can raise a child out of the loins of an 85-year-old man and a 75-year-old wife. He knew 10 years ago that this would take a miracle. This would take a supernatural working of God for him to have a child. He knew all along that God would have to be working in this and step in to intercede, to make his promises come true because Sarah was barren and her days of fertility were past. Nothing had changed or has changed since then materially. But now Abraham is crying out after 10 years of waiting, saying, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I know you can do what you have promised. I believe you have found a way to bring ultimate blessing to me and my offspring. But Lord, my faith is weak. I need to see something with my eyes to know you will do what you say you will do. And so the text tells us that God comes to Abraham and he comes with a word and with a sign. God takes Abraham outside and he says, Eleazar, he will not be your heir, but you will have a son by your own body. Abraham, look to the stars. Look at them. Number them if you can. Surely you will have as many offspring as the stars that you see with your eyes. And Abraham believes God, and God counts his belief as righteous. God counts Abraham righteous. Isn't it interesting, though, you know, even as he takes him outside, even as Abraham is struggling with doubt, as he struggles to believe that he, uh, you know, and as his faith needs a little boost, God comes to him, but he doesn't really say anything new to Abraham, does he here? I mean, what he says is not that different from what he said before a few chapters ago when he said, look to the dust of the earth, as many dust particles as there are upon this earth, so shall your offspring be. And now he says, Abram, look to the sky. And all those stars that you see with your eyes, they will be your offering. It is the same promise as before. But God stoops down to Abraham's need. He condescends to him when he admits his faith is weak. And he gives him a word of promise and a visible sign. So that Abraham might know that what God has said is true. 
He does the same thing today, doesn't he? I mean, God still speaks to his people by his word, and he speaks by his word and by visible sign, by his sacraments, showing us with our very eyes what he has promised is true, that there is a way we receive ultimate blessing from God, and it comes through the seed of Abraham, promised long ago. He doesn't make new promises each week. We hear the same old gospel truths as when we first believed, but he remembers that we are dust. He remembers our frames, and in our weakness, our faltering faith, he comes with words and visible signs reminding us of the promises we already know but have forgotten or are coming to doubt. And Abraham here, he looks with his eyes and he sees this tangible reality before him and his faith is strengthened. And the text tells us he is counted righteous, not because of the greatness of his faith. Surely that is what is at issue. That is what he is wrestling with. But because of what his belief is in, namely in the promise of God that he would bring forth an offspring from his own body through whom the world would receive blessing through. A child would come through Abram, one who would make the way into the very presence of God, the very promised land. Abraham looks to the stars, much like we look to the bread and wine, and he believes the gospel, as Galatians 3 says, and he is counted righteous. But God doesn't just give Abraham a word and a sign about a seed. He also gives him a word and a sign about a promised land, a promised land. In verse 7, the scene has changed. It's now a new day. We don't know how much time has lapsed, but Abraham is still entertaining the same doubts. It's the same old situation, just a different day. These doubts, they linger. Not only now his doubts are concerning the land of promise. He says, oh God, how will I know that I will possess it? How can I trust these things? How can I know and rest upon your word and what you have said? And so God comes to him and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you from out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and two birds. And as modern readers, we look at this text and we say, what in the world is going on here? You know, how does this help Abraham's doubts in any way? But to the original audience, as Moses writes these words to the household of Israel, they hear these words and they say, ah, that's covenant language. It's like when God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the house of bondage. And then he covenanted with us. He's getting ready to make a covenant with Abraham here. We're about to witness a covenant being made. It's like over in Jeremiah chapter 34 and verse 18 where Jeremiah, in this particular setting, he is declaring judgment on Israel for breaking covenant with God. And he says in verse 18, And the men who transgressed my covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf they cut into and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hands of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be as food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. They understand this is covenant language here. 
They recognize this. They live in that time frame. And so Moses hears hearing this language, and they know what God is going to do here. And they're thinking he's going to make a covenant with Abraham right here. And they'll both walk down this bloody pathway in the middle and covenant together just as we did. And so Abraham, who knows what's going on, brings the animals And he takes all the animals except for the birds because they're too small. And he cuts them in half right down the spine. That was the custom in the day to take the animal and from head to toe half it. And then one half they would set over here on this side. And the other half they would take and put it on this side. And they would create this bloody pathway, this mess that is before you. A bloody pathway in which he and God are to covenant together. And it's such a bloody mess that's going on here that he, as he waits for the sun to go down, when these ceremonies take place, the birds of prey come down. And Abraham has to drive them away. And the question is, How does splitting animals in half and making Abraham basically a little more than a butcher confirm the promises of God to Abraham? And what does this have to do with the promise of a a land and of a seed? How does this sign do anything for Abraham's faith? And how does this remove his doubt about the land? How does this indeed strengthen him about the land that God is going to give him that he has promised him? Well, again, as modern hearers, sometimes we're too far removed to see immediately what God is doing. Either way, you know, either we're uh, disquieted by the whole scene. You know, this is really disturbing stuff. And as we sort of reduce it down to some sort of uh, uh, agreement or, or a contract, we minimize what's going on here. But in the ancient Near East, this is a far more serious contract than what we see today. In fact, one manuscript found describes this kind of ex- uh, ceremony, explaining what is going on in this covenant ceremony before us, where Malit, uh, Matilu says concerning the lamb cut into this head. is not the lamb head of a lamb. It is the head of Matilu. If Matilu sins against this treaty, so may, just as the head of this spring lamb is torn off, be the head of Matilu and his sons be torn off. This is far more than a binding contract. This is like, look, I'm so serious about what I'm saying that I promise harm to myself if I do not keep this promise. Look, this, is, this is playground uh, 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 language taken up a notch. Cross my hope, heart, hope to die, and I'm so serious that I'm going to do it that if I don't, you can stick a needle in my eye. This is serious, binding language and stuff. And as the scene unfolds, as Abraham awaits the time of evening for this ceremony, what we are supposed to see is Abraham and God walking together down this pathway And if God breaks his end of the promise, may his head lay on the ground, just as the ram that lies split open. May he be torn asunder. The same, then, is true for Abraham, who is to walk through the path with him. And if he fails in the covenant arrangement, he, too, is to be torn in two, just as these animals that lie on the ground. And yet that's not what we see unfold at all. In verse 12, the scene shifts again, and as the sun begins to go down, as an old day ends, as it passes away, Abraham is lulled into a deep sleep. 
This is no ordinary sleep. This is God coming down and closing Abram's eyes so that he can have no part in what will take place next. It's like the sleep that fell upon Adam in the garden when he uh, awoke and there was, uh, the world was a far different place than it had been when he fell asleep, when his eyes had first been closed. So too will the same be true of Abraham. And in the text, the text tells us that Abraham falls into a deep sleep and a great darkness and dread falls upon him. You know, the darkness, it's oppressive over him. The dread is so thick in the air you can taste it. You can cut it with a knife. You can feel the oppression and darkness and dread that Abraham's feel. And surely, Abraham has this sense of dread and darkness about him as he prepares to covenant with God, as he prepares to uphold whatever obligations God sets before him to keep. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, preparing to covenant with him, this man, knowing full well that if there are obligations for him to keep, he will surely fail. Beloved, this is the dark hour of the soul where Abraham sees who he is as a sinner before a holy God, as a holy God comes and draws near to him to meet with him face to face, meeting him in covenant. And Abraham is filled with dread. And God comes down and he says this. He says, no this for certain Abraham. Your children will be sojourners in a land that is not their own. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will judge that nation and they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you will die in a good old age. That's great news, right? This is not the news that you're expecting to hear. We want God to say, Abraham, I'm going to give you that 40 acres that you've been longing for, and I want you to have that good land right now. We want God's kingdom to come right now to this earth, but God says, for 400 years, your children will not enter this land. They will be sojourners just as you sojourn. They will suffer as you suffer, and your great, 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 great grandson will eventually enter this land, but only after much pain and sorrow and many trials and suffering at the hand of oppressors. But don't worry. I will judge that nation that suppresses your children for so long, and they'll get lots of stuff from it, and they will eventually live in the land of promise. Though we know from the rest of the Old Testament, they never even owned the full extent of the land described here. And God says, and you, you'll die without any land to your name other than the land that you will be buried in. For you will be buried in a good old age, though you will live to a good old age. And you think, what is this? <laughs> this is not good news unless... Unless Abraham was never looking to be blessed in this life, in this earthly kingdom. Isn't that what Hebrews tells us about Abraham? That Abraham wasn't looking for an earthly land, but that he was seeking a city whose builder and maker was God. He was always seeking a heavenly inheritance. The reward God promised him. He was always looking for a way into the heavenly Jerusalem where God dwelt and in whose presence he might be forevermore. He was looking for a way into the presence of God. That is what the promise of Abraham is all about. It is ultimately about God graciously bringing a people into his very presence. And he promises that that will happen through Abraham's seed. 
Therein lies the problem, doesn't it? That a holy God promises a sinful person that he would dwell in his presence because a holy God cannot stand in the presence of sinners. And Abraham doubts and says, how, Lord, will I know? How can I know these things are true? And so God, to seal his promise, he takes a smoking pot and a torch and he passes through this buddy pathway. And he does so by himself. And as he does so, he swears by his own name, for there is no name that is greater. And he swears to his own harm that this will indeed be done, that Abraham's offspring will be blessed, and they will be as numerous as the stars in the heaven, and that this people will dwell in a heavenly land with him forevermore. All this is promised as a smoking pot and a torch come down, moving through a bloody pathway, a smoking pot that would remind us or would have made a pillar of smoke or a cloud or a torch and a torch that was sending fire heavenward. It's supposed to remind you of how God led Israel out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God himself is walking through this bloody path so much so that one writer says these two legs repre- or these two pillars represent the very legs of God as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. God is taking the curses of this problem upon himself to guarantee that God's word is true. And Abraham lies there in a deep Slumber, he cannot move. He can do nothing at all to help God keep his promise. He cannot participate in any way. In the way, uh, if the way into the presence of God was left to us in any way, we would always be doubting and asking, God, how do I know? How do I know these things are true? You will let me inherit your heavenly land and only to remove it. And if God is doing it himself. The only way, um, the only way that we will know for sure that God means it is if he does it himself. And that's what happens, isn't it? I mean, Christ came. And he came as a sinless, perfect man, one obedient to the whole law of God in every way, and yet he takes upon himself this sinless, perfect man, God-man. He comes and he takes the curse of sin and death, and he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. He goes down that bloody pathway, carrying the curse of Adam in his very flesh, in order that the children of Abraham, all those who trust by faith in Christ alone, might be able to enter into the promised land, the heavenly Jerusalem, through him. For surely that is what he says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father save through Christ. And people of God, that is good news. That's the good news Abraham needed to hear to calm his doubts. That is the good news that we need to hear because of salvation. If our entrance into the presence of God is dependent on us in any way, we will always doubt. We will always wonder, are we good enough? Have we done enough? Have we kept enough of his word? Have we done enough good works? But God walks through the bloody path by himself, and he takes the curses of his bro- this broken covenant upon himself. He takes our sin and our failings to walk perfectly before, and he carries it in his own flesh. And what is left for the people of God to do? 
we are left much like Abraham. We are left there to trust God and his promises. People of God, we need not doubt the goodness of God to his people, to his children. You have his word on the matter, though things may not look good at the moment, though you may go through suffering and trials of every kind in this life, you can take God at his word for those who are in Christ that what he has promised to do, he will do. And it is a good promise, and he has sealed it by his very blood, the very blood of the covenant. And we can look then, as our faith is doubting, as our faith wavers, we can look to visible signs and seals of what God promised. By my broken body and blood, I redeem you. And in our weak and faltering faith, we can say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Remind me once again how good that news of the gospel is, that glorious gospel of old. People of God, lay your doubts, your cares, your anxieties at the foot of the cross, for only there is healing found. Only there will all doubts be removed. Look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you and we confess that we are sinners in need of your mercy and your grace. Father, we look to you in faith knowing that you have done so, that you have given grace and mercy and that it can be found in the person and works of Christ Jesus. Father, we believe, help our unbelief Turn our doubts into a strong faith. Father, we pray that you would turn our eyes to heaven from where our help comes from. For surely our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Father, we pray indeed that you would make these truths true for us, that you would help us to know them and to long for them. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.